Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 173. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I got to be joined by someone who's got the fanciest name of any guest that we've ever had here, Mr. Lucius Tyree Fourth. Lucius, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing just fine. I am glad to hear that. Now, you came onto my radar through some former guests that we've actually had on. I know you work quite closely with Rafael Lovato Jr. and with Shanjay Hibero, but maybe you can do me a favor and just give yourself a quick introduction. Yeah, I've been doing strength conditioning for about going on 20 years now. And around, let's see, it was uh, 2010. I'd, well, before then, I'd worked with all sorts of different types of athletes and everyday people and just I've been a sponge to this field. So I've just been studying and implementing things and gaining experience for the better part of my first decade. And then I was blessed to hook up with Rafael Lovato Jr. And as far as my strength, conditioning, nutrition concepts and things into the uh, grappling world, that started in 2010. And Rafael has introduced me to the to the world's greatest combat athletes and taken me all over the planet and it's been one hell of a ride awesome and by the way if people want to check out your coaching what's your website where do they go to do that it is greenstrengthhq.com got it and uh, they can they can find anything they need there Got it. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes just in case anyone listens to this and they want to reach out to you and get in contact, maybe get some help. But what I was hoping you could discuss today is strength and conditioning, especially for elite level athletes. Now, We've had guests on in the past who have talked about how to build strength and conditioning programs for hobbyists or people who don't do this professionally. But I'm also curious to explore how a strength and conditioning program looks when you're dealing with someone whose goal is to be number one in the world. I would imagine that's quite different from someone who just wants to be in in decent shape. As a hobbyist myself, my strength and conditioning needs are relatively simple. As long as I'm healthy and I can do the things I want to do, I'm happy with where my strength and conditioning program is at. But that's because I'm not entering into competitions at the highest levels, hoping that I can clean up. My commitment to this and my training methods, if I were to go at that level, obviously I'd be putting in a lot more time and my training methods would need to be a lot more intelligent because I'm in there with other people who are doing everything they can to be in the best physical shape possible when they go in to compete. So with that said, given the caliber of the athletes you've worked with, I'd love to dig into your framework for how you do this and how you help these people structure these programs. Well, you know, the interesting thing is a high-performing professional athlete is 
is not very different from a regular human being, a weekend warrior. If we're talking truly developing a physical fitness, I think we look a little bit too deep and we try to put these big blanket things on, on like a, a big blanket statement onto like one thing where we really got to look at these athletes as individuals, who they are, their history, how they train. Uh, how they eat, all those things kind of go into into play. So when I look at high-performing athletes, the thing that really separates is, it, is you're looking at creating a lifestyle. So you're trying to figure out where do I want to, where are we trying to take this person? What is the end goal or what is the competition? How fit do we need to be? All the above there. But then it's really about the more serious you are, the more variables you need to control. And that's when you know, a guy like Rafael Lovato Jr., uh, Shanji, they are uh, 100% invested in learning how to manipulate all things in their lifestyle to create that end goal, which is better performance. You hear it all the time, better sleep, better diet, better recovery is really hot. All these things are really, really hot to talk about, but who is implementing them and who is implementing them in a correct manner that's you know, in relation to everything else they're doing in their in their day, their training, their life, and all the above. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I think that's an important consideration too, because you can be the hardest worker in the gym right. that there is. You can work your ass off, but if you're eating like garbage and you're sleeping like garbage, it doesn't really matter how much work you put in in the gym. I mean, I've definitely had this experience myself where over the years, I know there's certain things about my diet that if I tweak, it makes a big difference. If I drink, for example, I will pretty much immediately put on about 15 pounds. And if I stop drinking, I will immediately lose 15 pounds. And it doesn't matter how much time I spend at the gym. That's just the way that my body works. So I think it's important to have that broad approach to wellness where you're not just looking at, okay, how many times do you pick up the heavy thing and put it back? down again. There's a lot more to being an athlete than just the time you put in the gym. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think a good direction to take this is people, usually jiu-jitsu practitioners, understand the importance of technique. And they understand the importance of Shanji's episode. I was listening to that recently with you where you guys were talking about pressure and the elegant intricacies of what he was talking about with an inch this way, an inch this way, and just posture and position in, in every single thing. And that is the same thing as weight training. I mean, weight training is a skill. At the very end of the day, our body is designed to move a certain way. And first and foremost, our strength conditioning program needs to be getting our body back to that base human movement standard. I mean, we need to be able to to climb. We need to be able to crawl. We need to be able to bend and uh, lunge and, and jump. And we need to be able to do these things with confidence and understanding of what we're doing and how to progress and train them deeper over time. But there is a basic fundamental principle that has to be met with human movement. And I, I find that the majority of us just haven't addressed that basic principle and we're already looking for a tool or a program to throw in there to fix us. When we need to step back and we need to look at ourselves, and we need to recreate and recorrect our own movement and apply these tools at the proper dosage. 
You know, it's really funny that you bring that up because we've talked about this a lot recently, especially in the context of jujitsu, where people come into jujitsu and right out of the gate, they want to be taught all the fancy techniques. You know, they want to know how to do the cool arm bars and the cool sweeps, but there's not a lot of thought put into, okay, how do you move your body properly? How do you position your body so that all of these techniques are likely to actually work. And how do you position your body so that you are less likely to be injured? Right. The example I give a lot is if you go to a boxing class, the first thing they're going to tell you, right, is how to adopt a standard boxing defensive posture, right? They're going to tell you chin down, hands up, work Mm -hmm. on your footwork. And really any technique you do, any punch you throw is less relevant than having that foundation where you're always in a good position. And we don't talk about that very often. Often in jujitsu, but it's also true in jujitsu. You know, you can have all of these fancy techniques in your arsenal, but if you're doing dumb, risky things with your body, you're leaving your arms and your legs and your neck dangling, you're likely to get caught in a submission or you're likely to get injured. And so understanding the base movements of jujitsu is a very powerful framework, I think, for how you can learn this art. And I generally advocate now that before people even start thinking about techniques, uh, you know, what great submission they want to do, I think it's better that they think about okay, how do I learn to move my body in an efficient and safe manner? And it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is kind of similar too, where the big gains come from the foundation. Yeah, I think each skill set, you know, everybody has some something that they are passionate about and that they are good at, whether it's even you know, teaching somebody about finance to being a jiu-jitsu teacher. Like you have something that you understand. And the more you understand something and the more time you've put in you realize that quality is everything like it truly matters on the, on the highest level in jiu-jitsu we know that technique and mastery of the basics is what's going to always keep you in the fight that is the timeless jiu-jitsu and it's the same thing in the, in the weight room we have to have good movement patterns. We have to pick the appropriate exercises for the person. You know, everybody's different. And let me put it this way. If you think about a jujitsu room, you have all sorts of different types of bodies. You've got, you know, bodies that move really well, bodies that are older and stiffer that don't move as well. And so everybody's kind of adopted these different games that kind of work around their body. But the fundamentals of jujitsu are still the same. Um, The basic stuff. So mm-hmm. each one of these people, it's kind of funny because we're all like looking around the room and we're all adopting principles or skill sets from, from other people and watching how people do this. Or I might see, be inspired by how somebody work at, works out or, or whatever. But then I'm different from those people. And we, can, we know all of our training partners that might have a bad back or their, their knees just aren't as good. Or, and then there's the young guys and there's even the blessed old guys that can still you know, really wrestle and move and get up and down and scramble. And there's just so many different types of, of athleticism and patterns that to throw a one-size-fits-all program out of people is just, it really has no, no purpose. But to tell everybody and to inspire everybody to take control of their general physical preparedness, their general ability and strength to you know do push-ups, to do pull-ups, to do lunges, to to ruck, and do all these things at a base level. The irony behind this is that I find that most people get into the best shape of their life, you know, because they're truly addressing the big bang for your buck stuff. 
Yeah. And now I love how you're bringing up that everyone's body is different because this is, I think, a a bit of myth busting that we need to do in jujitsu. I know that when I started learning this art, people would tell me up and down that, well, all of these techniques work great. And if they don't work for you, that's just because you're doing them wrong. So for a long time, I assumed that I was just doing a lot of jujitsu wrong. But a lot of the stuff at a white belt level that didn't work for me at a black belt level, even after practicing it thousands of times, it still has limitations for me. And it's just because of body types. I mean, there are certain moves for me. I have short, but really thick, strong legs. So some things for me, like triangle chokes, there's just limitations, right? I'm not going to be able to triangle (laughs) choke Brock Lesnar, no matter how many times I try, because the mechanics just aren't there. And that's fine. It, you know, there's tons of other techniques in jujitsu that will work better for my body type, but you have to be honest about that. And say that like look everyone's got different limitations everyone has different body types everyone is at a different phase in their journey everyone has different goals and there is no no one size fits all approach for learning how to be the best athlete you can be i've noticed this as i've had more strength and conditioning and athletic specialists on the podcast because this is the first thing they say i've been really hoping that someone would come on the podcast and give something really specific and concrete and say you know all you need to do is 20 deadlifts a day and you're going to be awesome. But the reality is everyone is totally different in terms of what works for them. And no strength and conditioning coach worth their salt is going to prescribe an answer without knowing the person they're prescribing it to. Yeah, 100%. And I think there is no perfect program, but there is a program that is mandatory, like I've been saying, and that is you better get the most out of your own human mechanics and movement and and strength level in a in your own body like that's first and foremost because when we see guys get banged up and when anybody goes to a pt and a good physical therapist or whatever they just put them back through basic movement patterns they go back and they they teach them how to you know reconnect re rewire the nervous system and just learn to kind of rebuild those skills and it might take a little tissue work or it might take a little manipulation and a few weeks of rest and recovery a little bit but all those things are a part of training like that's the skill set that the athlete and the coach need to learn you know that's that's what i what rafael lovato is is done and what makes him so special is like when i met him in 2010 we've been working out ever since and he's never said no he's never questioned anything He's always been a team player and been 100% on board with whatever I've thrown at him. And the interesting thing behind that is, although I'm a coach and I would love a lot of credit, I'm looking at this whole, the bigger picture of a performing, you know, high performing world-class athlete. And I need lots of great minds in here. So as the coach with him and a lot of these other guys is, I really call myself a guide. I start to look and it's like, all right, what do we need more in this athlete in this period of time? And with those guys, they're fortunate enough to to connect with the greatest minds on the earth. So we've been able to build a a team. Um, And that's where guys like Cameron Shane with Budokan uh, Yoga uh, has came in with the nobility and stuff. So we've just like added the pieces on in other great minds to in learning and watching those things it it all goes back to the same thing it, it, each each skill set and each mm-hmm. so to say like guru is just taking us back to the uh, basic principles 
Yeah, yeah. Now, I would love to know, in the case of Lovato, you know, you started working with him. You've been working with him for over a decade now. Yeah. When you guys got together and he came to you and presumably said, hey, look, I need a strength and conditioning coach that will help me maintain my status as the guy, you know, the number one in the world, in the country. How did you start off that process with him? I'm just curious to know from step one, how did you go about building a program with him that worked for him? And what did that program wind up coming together as? I'm just curious to know exactly what does he do and how was your work involved in helping build up the process that he now follows? We did a lot more volume and a lot more training. When I say there's no perfect program, at that time, I was developing perfect programs for these people. And I mean that kind of tongue in cheek is uh, we were training a lot harder then. Of course, I was looking out for him always and picking the right type of stuff, but we were following more of a, a conjugate based system back in the day and doing a lot more high intensity training and, and just also getting that emotional feeling of training. That was the big thing, you know, really to develop his trust over those years. We kind of, we grinded, we worked hard. We put the pojada in the weight room. And then you just start to get wiser and you just start to, you know, when I'm with him four or five, six years later, I start to really know him as a person. And I know his stress outside the gym and outside the school. And I start to, to kind of understand those things and those, those habits and routines and what's breaking down and what were our tissue and massage workers, all those type of people, what were they always having to work? So we were just kind of always auto-regulating and adjusting. But at first, we definitely got after it. And he, as you know, is just a grinder. He would get in there and grind and grind and grind. And then really the, the cool turning point in this story, and I'll be kind of quick with it, was when he got his, his pec injury. If you remember when he tore his, his chest in training. And that set him back for a while. And obviously, he had to have surgery, and he was really worried about just how he was ever going to compete again and and all the above. And when he came back from that, that time, it scared him. It took took his love away for a period of time. It was his first real injury. And we got to really have that conversation of like, okay, when we come back, let's never put bad volume, just bad mileage on at all just for ego, just for entertainment, for, for whatever. Let's get serious. Let's make sure that we're always, that every joint is moving as best as it can, that our movement patterns are always down, that we're monitoring your sleep, we're monitoring how you you know hydrate and how you feel your body. And it doesn't have to be crazy scientific. We were just you know communicating. And he came back from, from that injury. That's when he went to the Brasileiros. And I want to say he subbed like, 11 out of 12 guys or something in that something historic for him but then ever since then that's when the mindset really shifted on i have to keep this guy feeling good and confident and in the greatest general shape year round that i can and he's one of the heaviest strongest grapplers on the mat and and, I, and that's just something i learned through those guys you know cuz you can selfishly want to want to add more strength and want to bring a certain lift up and and kind of put my name behind that. But we got to a point where I started every every room I was ever in with Raphael or Shanji, they're the two strongest guys on the mat. And so then it's kind of like, well, 
how much more strength do we need? These guys need health. They need longevity. They need vitality. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of the that's kind of the direction it went. Got it. Now, I really like this idea of kind of going beyond just the strength and conditioning aspect of the coaching. I mean, I've never really found a strength and conditioning coach that I've worked with that I was really happy with. I mean, I remember the first coach I worked with, their only concern was really giving me some instruction on <laughs> which right. things to pick up that are heavy and which things to put back down again. And they didn't seem particularly interested. And I upgraded my strength and conditioning coach a few years later to some Someone who was supposed to be a lot better and they were a bit better, but really their program was not that much different. They just told me, okay, here's, you know, lift some things. Here's the exercises I want you to do. But they went a little bit beyond and kind of gave me some guidance in terms of what I should be eating. But I never really felt like this person actually really cared or wanted to be involved yeah. in the rest of my life. They kind of assumed, I guess, that the fitness and strength and conditioning side of things was just living in a bubble. But I agree with you and I see your point, right? I at some point, there's diminishing returns, I suppose. If you're already the strongest person on the mats by far, then the question becomes, look, are you going to see diminishing returns if you try to just get this person even more swole, <laughs> right? At some point, presumably doing that, you have to balance off the risk of injury versus the benefits of getting even bigger. Maybe a better use of your time as the coach is to help them focus on sleeping better or on improving their conditioning or something like that. Yeah, I think the irony behind this kind of conversation, though, is is we as as strength coaches or you know exercise kinesiologists, whatever you want to call us, we should know this. Like that's in literature that we should have read if we were working with these type of people. That kind of stuff is is strength deficits and uh, showing the correlation of you know how much strength is needed to really elicit this sort of adaptation and response. Like that stuff is all out there. And I guess I'm taking the route of saying, of being so anti giving you an answer because mm -hmm. your first couple of trainers were correct. Training in the weight room is easy. Like the exercises are all out there. We, sh a smart coach is going to pick the best one for you if you have limitations, like in uh, structurally or something like that. But as far as like the exercises and doing the work and the programs, man, they are all out there. But the stuff that really gives you the greatest results is all the stuff out of the gym. Right. And, you know, I can give you this great program, but if you get caught in an arm bar tonight and your elbow's kind of jacked up a little bit and it's going to need three or four days and we've got a little dumbbell bench press tomorrow, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And most people are going to kind of push through it or they're going to figure out ways around it and they don't realize that they're probably causing dysfunction in some other area that's going to maybe catch up to them at some point. Or do we still train, of course, but we are smart enough to realize like my elbow is hurt. It's not working properly. So I can do all these other things that don't work to work around that, but then I can also address the problem. And addressing the problem is just a smart trainer or a smart trainee and they're just listening to people and, and all the information that's out there. So I guess in a long-winded answer, if people are listening to this, start to think about how many steps we all just kind of, we skip. And in the, the personal training world and the strength coach world, every one of these coaches has read or has supposed to have read through these answers. I find it 
that very few understand how to communicate and build a relationship with somebody to get them to do all the boring and tedious things that really make the difference. And it's the same in jujitsu. It's the same in music as, you know, any great teacher is going to stress the importance of the boring and tedious stuff. And that's just, that's what we've got to get back to. So, I mean, what are some of those boring and tedious things? I'd love to dig into this and particularly the mindset about the boredom of this stuff, because one of the pieces of conventional advice that you hear a lot, and I think makes sense for average people is to build a routine that they at least enjoy and they have fun with. This is kind of conventional wisdom for people who are not pro athletes, right? People whose motivation and desire to focus time on things like fitness and nutrition is somewhat limited. And I have, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I definitely fall into that boat, right? I'm, I'm 40 years old. I'm a dad. I have a desk job for me. I don't really care if I have rock hard abs or anything, right? All I care about is that I'm healthy, that I'm in good shape, that I can play with my kids, that I can do jujitsu. I'm, I'm, just happy if I'm in relatively good shape. And the problem that happens a lot with strength and conditioning is if you're taking someone who is not innately athletic and they don't even enjoy athletics, then if you give them a program that they hate, they're just never going to stick to it. I mean, something that Stefan Kesting once said is the most important thing for most people is to have a routine that you enjoy. And that is better to have a less than perfect routine that you actually enjoy doing versus having a perfect routine that you never do because you dread doing the thing. Right. And I'd be curious to know to what extent that holds for pro athletes, because pro athletes presumably have a different motivation. If your job depends on being in the best athletic shape you possibly can, maybe you're more inclined to grind out the stuff that you hate doing. So I'd love to know when you structure a program, how much do you care <laughs> about whether your athlete really enjoys doing the, the thing or not? I mean, if if Lovato hates doing burpees, for example, do you say to him, okay, well, we're going to structure your routine accordingly, or do you make him do 200 burpees right now, <laughs> regardless of whether he likes it or not? Well, there's, there's two parts to this question. And I, I think addressing that second part right there, I'm very, very limited with him. I actually don't like to do a whole lot of stuff. And um, that's kind of a, an interesting thing when he travels, he gets to go into all these gyms and, and meet all these other trainers. And of course, they want to teach him something and get to, get to work out with him and things. And that's all that's all fun. But when I look at Raphael, I look. My goal is performance. Like I, I don't care how he looks in the weight room. I want him to perform and be healthy and be strong and be confident. So now, as time's gone by and as he's gotten older, we really kind of just have. I have some basic exercises that I make sure that that he keeps consistent on. We've got some kind of numbers and performing goals inside those exercises that. I kind of always want to make sure that he's he's at and I know that we are we are ready to always jump into anything. And that's pretty much how he lives his lifestyle. So if I start trying to do more stuff and just adding in newer exercises that might create a different kind of feeling and maybe make him too sore and affect his training or something like that, it's just it really doesn't serve a purpose right now. The most important thing is structural integrity keeping his strength where it's at and keeping him able to train and compete. And that being said, like, I think the, the tedious, the boring and tedious stuff that nobody wants to do, like I was talking about is, is literally just, it's the hip mobility. It's the, 
you know, the calf stretch, the shoulder mobility, whatever. I, I think people taking time to really look at how their body works and they might be exercising and doing a program successfully, but you know, could your hips use a little work? Do you have internal rotation a little bit more on one side than the other? Do we need to kind of balance these things out to one, reduce the chance of injury two, increase the chance of better performance? And with both of those, you are increasing longevity. So I think when you get into that stuff, you've kind of, we've all seen how people static stretch. They static stretch with, or, you know, do mobility with like no intention. And that's the real thing here. When I talk about boring and tedious stuff, I talk about actually bringing intention to whatever it is you're doing. The warm up, the, the foam rolling, the, the actual exercise itself. There's a checklist that goes on in each exercise. And especially as a professional, you're kind of taking that vow like, hey, I'm a professional. I really have to be thinking about how to execute this exercise to the utmost best ability that I can to get the most out of it. Because as a jiu-jitsu black belt world champion, these guys understand that they have to execute those techniques the exact same way. So they, they kind of get it over time. Yeah. I'd love to dig into this a bit because this is something that I've heard in different forms recently on the podcast in completely different contexts, which is this, this idea of what you do, you should do with intention, mm -hmm. which is one of those things that, of course, intuitively makes sense. I mean, I think that, yes, of course, you want to do everything you do with intention. But beyond just simple mindfulness, I'm trying to narrow in on a definition of what exactly this means. Mm. And when you say, OK, we want to do it with intention, what does that look like? And where would people tend to fail when it comes to doing this? Like, what does it look like if you fail to do something with intention? And how would you go about course correcting that? That's an interesting question. For me personally, I've kind of this is something I've I've been doing as a as a personal practice of my own is there's a lot of times when I'm teaching exercise that I could get I don't ever get mad at an individual like specifically at at that person, but I get mad in the sense of like maybe they're not paying attention the way I want them to pay attention. But we get back to that, hey, I got to let that person just go and have fun a little bit, right? So I've got to kind of read psychology there. But I start to notice this like, okay, it, it bugs me sometimes when people aren't aren't listening to the, the intricate details that I am so passionate about. And then I start thinking about the first five years of my jujitsu journey and how many times I sat into class and learned move after move after move and then forgot it a day later, a week later same day yeah and that sort of thing was always it's kind of like that that shadow that you're seeing you know i'm like okay i'm this is me doing the same thing that these people are doing you know in my class so i i made a personal effort on myself to really be intentional in my presence with the instructor i want to let you know that i'm listening i will engage i will ask questions i will come back to you and ask a question if I'm, if I'm not understanding this, but I just want the instructor to know that like, I value the skills and the knowledge you're talking about and I'm doing my best to let it sink in and actually make it a part of my toolbox. And when people do that with exercise, when they really 
take control. And having a coach is one thing, but having a coach that can help you take control of yourself is another thing. And that's when people can really take off and just starting to think about the intention of each rep. Am I in good posture and position? Are my feet into the floor or is my back into the bench? Am I getting as all the stability out of whatever is, is helping me be stable? Am I doing all these things? And it's mentally draining. It's physically draining. But then you start to, you start to kind of notice some things. And I'm, I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but I think people can remember we've seen so many times of like three sets of 10 in a workout, right? And guys go in the gym and, and they do three sets of 10. They look, they're done, they're done. They're like, what should I do next? Should I do another set? I can do an, an two sets. And all of a sudden they've done five, six sets of 10. And they're just getting more volume because they got it done. It was easy. Now, if you have a really, really good coach or somebody that can help you get the most out of three sets of 10, it's an entirely different set or like sets and it's entirely different accumulation. And then you kind of realize like, wow, if I really invest into this skill set and I really invest into the exercise and I understand how to get the most out of the exercise, that three sets of 10 is by far plenty. Mm -hmm. And it, in most times, it might wipe them out more than the five sets of 10. This is a challenge that I've definitely had. I mean, I caveat this with the statement that, I mean, all of our listeners know, I am anything but a professional athlete. There is not an athletic bone in my body. It is actually a miracle that I'm able to be as effective on the match as I am given all of this. But this is a problem that I've noticed with my routine, which is that there's a lot of diminishing returns I find where, mm -hmm. okay, if I start something like I start a weight routine, I'll see some degree of immediate result just by virtue of the fact that I'm increasing my general level of fitness, yeah. but I do start to see it cap out pretty quickly. And I get kind of frustrated because, you know, maybe for the first month I can tell I'm noticeably getting stronger, but then it just seems to sort of plateau. And I just find that like, I really struggle to kick it up to the next level. And maybe that comes down to just being intentional. Maybe I just need to diversify my training more, but I'm wondering if you ever have that experience with pros as well, where you give them a routine, they go in and they're just kind of hitting a plateau. They're getting frustrated. Is that a matter of something that can be fixed by being more intentional with your training or is it time to maybe shake it up? I presume that this is a common problem for pros just as much as for hobbyists. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially like when designing or helping out somebody, as we've been talking about everybody being different, you know, you'll see that in, in different athletes. There, there are athletes that can kind of push through barriers a little bit more. Their bodies are a little bit more resilient and you can kind of let them get away with stuff a tiny bit more. And then there are athletes that are, you don't want to call them fragile. It's just a, it's a different thing, but you've got to be a lot more attention to detail because that risk reward is just seemingly higher on them. So that is one thing that happens with, with all these guys. We've got we've to look at them differently, but the intention the intention definitely, you know, can usually, if somebody's 100% intentional into whatever they're doing and it's not working, then, then we've learned. Then we know, okay, hey, this isn't a very good thing for you. Let's move on, find a better thing and uh, place that in. But usually you have to get somebody to learn how to start being intentional to get them to that position. But I don't know. I, I think it's a that's an interesting question of like what intention is to each person. And I 
as a general rule, it's just, do you know the exercise? And, and let's go back to jujitsu. When you teach me a move, you're going to break down the intricate details of the move. A lift has that same thing. We can, we can create a checklist through the setup and all the way through the, the set down of a lift. And are we intentionally going through that and essentially drilling just like you would in jujitsu? That's training. I mean, we're just getting reps after reps after rep, but thinking about all that, that, that checklist, thinking about our posture, our position, thinking about how to, you know, create more uh, intra abdominal pressure with through our breathing. Like there are all these little skill sets that the better and the more intentional we are and the more we learn, the more we can kind of use. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Makes sense. Something that I personally struggle with is sleeping. This is something that I'd love to dig into because you talked about the importance of sleep. And I think it's pretty incontroversial that sleeping is important and that you need to get good sleep. I don't think there's many people who would argue the impact of that. But the one thing about sleeping that is challenging is that it can be very hard to just go to sleep when you want to (laughs) for some people. I mean, as someone who has battled with insomnia for my whole life, look, if you tell me I need to get more exercise, that's something that I can quite easily control and change. And if you tell me that I need to eat better, that's something that I can quite easily control and change. But if you tell me that I need to fall asleep at like 11 every night, I just can't do that. And I'd love to know if you ever have situations like this where athletes just really struggle with getting their their sleep routine in order and what you do to help them and what they can change to be a better sleeper, to be an elite level sleeper, I suppose, <laughs> is how you would describe it. Yeah, you know, that's a that's something I've always struggled with, too. I think we most most athletes seemingly struggle with that as well. All the jiu-jitsu guys I've been around, but, you know. At a base level, let's, let's look at what I've, I'm not a sleep expert at all. And, but what I've, what I've always recommended and what I've always done for myself as well is that I'm a big fan of getting in like a hot Epsom salt bath in the evening with these guys. Um, it's something that I, I do with all the jujitsu guys and the fighters, especially is, is make them just kind of wind down, get into a really warm Epsom salt bath. And that's just a, a time to sit there and just start to breathe and reflect and get away from the phone. And, and there's that mental challenge to do that tedious work that we were talking about earlier. And you asked what that tedious work is, is it's, can you put your, you know, can you leave the phone out of the room? Can you do, can you do the bath? Can you maybe do a 10 minute, five minute stretching, breathing routine at night to help wind you down? Those are the things. Okay, I totally want to unpack this because this is something that I find fascinating. Let's talk about the fucking phone. (laughs) (laughs) This is an area where I would love to know if you coach athletes on things like device usage, social media usage, because yeah. A lot of the athletes that I know, they are always posting on social media, which is completely understandable because for so many of these athletes, they live and die by their ability to get people to come to their seminars, to help fund effectively their training. So if social media is your lead funnel to bring in attention, you're going to have to probably post a lot on there. And I think it's reasonable to say that, look, there's a lot of elite level athletes who are probably spending hours every day on social media. I would also say 
that from my experience, especially during the pandemic, and as this podcast has built up, I have wound up using social media a lot more than I had in the past. And it has absolutely had a a demonstrable negative impact on my life. I would love to get your guidance on this. To what extent do you help your athletes have a more healthy relationship with their devices? Zero. I I don't coach them on that. I think most most of the athletes around me know that I absolutely despise that stuff. And it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, being in this world of having to play the game somewhat. But, you know, those, those guys all know that I want them to get off the phone as much as they can. I'm constantly always, especially with the Raphaels, the Shanjis, even the young Victor Hugos and those guys, anytime I get to like throw any wisdom at these guys, it is going to be like, Let's take care of ourselves. Let's get as much rest as possible. Let's make sure we're getting outside, getting a few walks in throughout the day, make sure that we're constantly, you know, providing movement through our joints and in whatever movement practice we're doing. It's just really painting the picture of like what a, what the healthiest, strongest world champion would look like. And they would, you know, they would just be they would be able and they would be doing these things all the time to, to keep that. So that's what I try to, I try to inspire them to live the healthiest life they can. And I believe that when we're trying to live the healthiest life that we can, both mentally, physically, and even spiritually, so to say, in your own beliefs, the performance is greater. You know, the, the back end's got to be healthy. Now, what I find interesting here is you said that you mandated that they go on walks, and that's interesting because I would have assumed, you know, if you're coaching an elite level athlete, your routine for them would be like do three hours of insane CrossFit or something like that. So it's interesting here that you're giving advice that kind of falls more under just general wellness, like going for walks. I mean, you're giving kind of the same advice to these athletes that I would give to my 70 year old parents for their well-being. Can you help me expand on that a bit? I'd love to dig into the the mindset behind this kind of gentler exercise or routine that you help give to these athletes too, because I think a lot of people would not expect that from an elite level coach. You know, it's 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 the practice of working in. We are we are very good at working out. We we liked and we can push ourselves through the punishing stuff and and as a society and as athletes and stuff, we like to work out more than we like to work in. Working out it takes away energy from us. It t- it's stressful. Working in provides us energy. It provides us vitality. It provides us just like I said, energy and, and excitement and, and rejuvenation, so to say. How we balance between those two is dependent on the person and how much stuff they're doing. But I am trying, my biggest thing is to build this full-on holistic lifestyle behind the performance. I believe that before we start talking about crazy programs or tools and uh, different diets and stuff that as an athlete and as a human being, we have to be consistently eating real food. We've got to consistently be moving in a very healthy way every single day. And we've got to pay attention to our breath. And these are the three pillars of, of green strength. My, my philosophy, they are built on eat real food, daily mindful movement, and be here now, which is just the, uh, the intention of playing with your breath. And those three things, as, as you know, are kind of those, 
holistic things that are gaining popularity again. Yeah. You know, right now we're starting to talk about all these real food diets and everybody's arguing about which is the correct one, but the common thing behind them is they are real food. Breathing is at an all time, it's made its high point again here the last couple of years, especially through the Wim Hof and all these other things. People are starting to understand that we have to nourish our body, we have to move our body, and we have to take control and learn the powers of our breath. And now when we stack this into the world of, of physical culture and, and exercise, yeah. then like I said, the results are, are skyrocketed and, and all the above. But so that's a long-winded answer of just trying to say like, I'm trying to make sure that the back end of all, any professional athlete or any human being, if they stop competing or stop their goals of pursuit of a competition, whatever it is, they fall back to the healthiest lifestyle that they can get to. Yeah. Something my instructor once taught me or told me as a, as in terms of his goals as an instructor, he said that his goal was to get his students up to black belt without really ever having them experience a devastating injury. He said that was really what he wanted out of his students. He looks at jujitsu as a way to improve your well-being. And the problem with the way that a lot of people train is they're so intense about it and they're so desperate to win gold medals that they will actually do things that are detrimental to their body. And right. it's not common to see people who might have a, a burst of brilliance when they're young and in their athletic prime, and then they're totally decrepit by the time they're 30. And my instructor had always said that his goal was to use jujitsu to help people with their wellness. And more than winning medals, he wanted people to get to the black belt stage of their journey without having suffered devastating, crippling injuries, which I think is a really good way to look at the sport. And I agree with you that this idea of a holistic approach to health is coming back. Now, one challenge that I've had as I dig into this, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts, is... Where do you go to get your information on good holistic health and wellness, especially pertaining to things like nutrition and supplements? Yeah. Because the challenge I have is new things like supplements, for example, um, are a largely unregulated industry. And even in terms of nutrition, a lot of the things that you think might be good are kind of counterintuitive, or maybe people are overly strict about certain so-called rules when it comes to nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, for example... You know, I had been told that green tea is generally good for you. I drink green tea, so that's great. And so I thought at some point, you know, well, I should start taking a green tea supplement. So I did that. And my thought was, well, how bad can this be for you? You know, you're taking a green tea supplement. It's just there's just green tea in there. Nothing bad for you. It should be totally fine. Turns out <laughs> if you take green tea supplements, you can kill yourself, actually, because the body is not primed to absorb that much green tea at once. You know, a little bit of green tea is healthy for you. But if you take a pill that has like a hundred X the concentration of a cup of green tea, you can actually shock your liver and people have gotten extraordinarily sick taking this, but you can still walk into the convenience store and buy green tea supplements, even though it is becoming increasingly known that these are actually dangerous. And this is the challenge that I have with things like supplements and things like nutrition as a broader category. There's so much folk wisdom out there and it's evolving so quickly that I, I just have such a hard time keeping on track of what I should actually 
actually do. And I'd love to get your perspective in terms of whether there's any golden rules for nutrition that you just generally follow or good sources of information that you trust so you don't mislead your athletes about what they should put into their bodies. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, this the nutrition world is an absolute crazy world. It's it's very interesting to see all these variations of diets come back and become popular now and everything just goes in these little cyclical cycles. But uh, nothing is new and there's not a magic trick out there that anybody has figured out in the recent, you know, 20 years here that, that you can find that's just going to give you all the answers. What I think is really funny with nutrition is let's take the vegans and let's take the carnivore side. Both of them are very popular right now. We got a lot of vegans who don't like carnivores. Carnivores <laughs> don't like vegans and they're arguing back and forth. But if you look into their stuff, they both follow a very, very big principle. It's real food. Now, they don't agree on the food, but it's real food from the earth. It wasn't man-made, processed, anything like that. And both of them agree of quality. So then we have quality real food. Now, the vegans don't agree with the meat eaters. The meat eaters don't agree with the vegans, but it's real food. So first and foremost, no matter what, before people start going down and wasting money on supplements, we have to go back to eating a real food diet. And I'm not I'm not a big, like, I am a fan of it. I don't in, like uh, have any skin in the game with it, but the Whole30 diet, and the reason I like it is because there is a wealth of information online as far as like blogs and things for recipes. And most of the health stores, most Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, anything, they've got things that are like Whole30 approved and stuff. But the irony here is that people actually take 30 days to challenge themselves to eat real food. And that seemingly <laughs> kind of fixes most of their problems, right? So as a nutrition thing for me, I try to get people to eat real food and get consistent with eating real food. Once you are consistent with eating real food, you basically get a blue belt in nutrition and that gives you the right and the ability to then start to manipulate your macronutrients or eliminate a macronutrient. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I find that we're just eating processed stuff and we just don't live a very balanced, healthy lifestyle. And we're like, hey, I'm going to start keto. And of course, you might lose a little bit of weight, but then you never learned how to eat. And when you get off of keto, you, you don't know where to go. And you have to have this, this baseline, as I've been talking about this whole time, whether it be of movement or whether it be with your nutrition, that with any extreme or challenge or thing phase you're in when you fall back your off season is real food consistently yeah now when you say that i'd love to invert this here and ask when we say eat real food specifically what are we eliminating what are the things that you would want people to take out i mean I, obviously we're talking about processed food but can you clarify exactly what you mean by that because i'm sure that for a lot of people it's probably important to get some good context in terms of things they should specifically cut out of their diet in order to just generally be healthier well if they could run fly swim did it come from the ground can you pick it off a tree those are all real foods 
that are provided from this earth that we can that we can eat. Another very easy rule is is one ingredient foods. Mm-hmm. You know, now this can kind of confuse people. Of course, if you make like a if you add three one ingredient things together, obviously you have three ingredients. But if you're looking at like an apple, an apple has one ingredient. Right. And if you're looking at maybe an apple granola bar or something like that, you might find eight to ten ingredients. And then if you're starting to look at like your your whey proteins or your proteins or meal replacement shakes and things like that, you're going to see 20, 30, sometimes up to 40 ingredients. And that's just like a ton of processed things that we can skip if we just start to look at the the real food, which is from the earth. It could run, fly, swim. You could pick it off a tree, come from the ground, or and it's primarily has one ingredient. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I got to say, as someone who is extraordinarily busy, I love the one ingredient rule because it makes snacking so much easier. I mean, oh I, my in gosh. my fridge, I just have like a bag of carrots. Yeah. And whenever I want to put something in my stomach, I literally just go and eat carrots, which might sound incredibly boring to people, <laughs> but you actually get used to it really, really quickly to just kind of be snacking on simple things. And yeah. this is actually how we do daycare meal prep for my daughter, who is a toddler. When she goes to preschool, then you know, we don't prepare big, complicated things or buy a bunch of like off the shelf snackables or anything for her. We basically just give her an assortment of relatively natural things that aren't heavily processed. And in addition to being uh, healthier for her, it saves a ton of meal prep time because, you know, you don't need to be slaving over a stove for an hour to cook something. If you just are giving someone a handful of carrots, maybe a handful of other relatively healthy things. So I, I think that that's probably just a really good heuristic rule for just understanding if something's probably a good idea to eat versus not. Yeah. And it's, you know, while we're talking about nutrition, there's, there's a lot of uh, intolerances. People always want to say like, I have a gluten intolerance or a dairy intolerance. And these are always interesting things as well. Cause for the majority of people that I work with, I usually see if I get them on a real food diet consistently, like making sure they get adequate protein in and they're eating fruits and vegetables and healthy fats, nuts and seeds and, and all that good stuff. Most of the time, those people's intolerances usually kind of, they realize that, hey, if I clean up what I'm eating and I get a better quality version of that stuff, I'm actually fine. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that's, that's the other thing with, uh, with food is, is the quality is a very important just as the quality of our exercise the quality of our our training in jiu-jitsu we're just back to that back to that intention <laughs> right right now what is your philosophy on cheating or cheat days because i know a lot of athletes that will bust their ass in the gym and then once or twice a week they will go and basically just do terrible things to their body yeah. <laughs> you know? they'll bust their ass in the gym and then they'll go out and eat like 12 ice cream sundays and binge drink all night long and then monday morning they're back at the gym again what is your philosophy on the whole cheat day thing well there's two different types of people here either we've all done that and do that everybody's had some fun and but you know over let's say this most of the guys that really start to take control of their nutrition and start to live a healthier lifestyle all around generally will start to want to cheat less when it's like bad foods 
and tons of it. And they start to kind of adopt that principle of, of liking better home cooked meals or maybe letting themselves like make some hamburgers or, you know, eat a little bit more rice and potatoes and just have some dessert. I mean, so usually when people start to embark on a healthier lifestyle, they become satisfied because they realize that they can eat good, nutritious foods every day. Yeah. Yeah. And the want and desire for that stuff kind of goes away. And if it doesn't, you're feeling so much better that usually when you go eat that stuff, you might enjoy it, but then you feel it the next day. And over time, most people start to make that conscious decision of like, okay, I don't really want to do, I'm feeling good. I don't really want to do this. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because this is actually one of the reasons why I generally recommend jujitsu as an activity. It's not even just because of anything great about jujitsu, but it's because for a lot of people, jujitsu inspires them to live a healthier life off the mats as well. I mean, I know, for example, if I eat like crap and I drink and I don't sleep well, when I roll into jujitsu the next day, I am going to perform suboptimally, to say the least. And it is a very, very real immediate feedback to feel that in an actual sparring match where you cannot perform the way that you want. And as a result, you get tapped out 800 times and you feel terrible and you have no cardio. It's a very immediate feedback mechanism that you don't see elsewhere in life. And I mean, I've talked to my brother about this, who's also a black belt in jujitsu. And he said the same thing as me, which is, you know, when you start training jujitsu, it very quickly will inspire you to eat healthier, to live healthier, because you want to perform better on the mats. And if you fail to do that, you're just going to get your ass beat every single time. And that's one of the shadow benefits of jujitsu. I mean, I can say from personal experience during the pandemic, I've been mostly off the mats and I've been taking that time to focus on the podcast here. I also work a tech job so I can do most of my work remotely. And as a result, I haven't really had that jujitsu anchor in my life like I used to, where I would go many times a week to go train. And what I found is it's really easy to add things back into your life that you probably don't want to have there. I mean, it got to the point over the pandemic where I was kind of like casually drinking more than I would want to. You know, it used to be that, you know, I would always think twice before having a drink because I know that if, you know, if I have a drink, I'm going to feel awful the next day and then I'm going to go to jujitsu and get my ass kicked and without having that check in my life I found it was really easy to add garbage back into my diet like alcohol Mm -hmm. and sugar and I had to really consciously start to unwind those bad habits earlier in the year because I found that I was kind of using jujitsu as an accountability system and with that gone the needle had kind of drifted in the wrong direction and I needed to replace that accountability system with something else because I didn't realize how much jiu-jitsu was keeping my health on track in general beyond just the exercise itself that's well put because it, it leads me to ask you here you had to figure out and you became aware that your balance started to change mm-hmm. and i think that most of us if we start to with a food log let's say you, you get somebody to actually write a seven-day food log down, just keep that on track, and then you can sit down with somebody and you can say, look, we're not going to judge you for anything that's on here, but let's step back objectively and look at these patterns. And you start to figure out the balance within those things is, you know, they'll see one thing and it's like, okay, I've kind of been an asshole about that. I could, you know, maybe change that up here and there, and then you just start chipping away there. And so, you had been in that position where, Living a certain lifestyle, living a certain routine made you feel certain ways. And as you started to take one thing away and add a, uh, a negative, so to say, in, 
you know, the balance of, of things changed and you started to feel that. And that is, that's exactly what we're talking about when we've been talking about all this stuff of putting it into kind of a, a holistic package, so to say, is, is then I would ask you, like, if you had to describe one part of your, your physical ability that you need to work on, do you have banged up knees? Is it a bad back? Are your hips a little tight? Like what area on your body do you think you need to work on? Oh, this is awesome. I get, I get to optimize my own health. Okay, your job now, Lucius, is to turn me into an elite-level athlete. All right, so let's do yes. this. I love this. For me, I've always been very cautious with my jiu-jitsu training. And like I said, jiu-jitsu has basically been my go-to physical activity for over a decade. Mm-hmm. So I've always been very mindful about injury avoidance. And as a result, I don't really have any big boo-boos that are kind of holding me back physically. Mm-hmm. Over the last two years, with the pandemic being a, a thing, I haven't been doing jujitsu that much. I've switched a lot to stuff that's easier to do at home. So I've been doing a ton of weight training. As a result, I'm way bigger than I used to be when I was doing jujitsu, but I'm also carrying around a bit more extra weight that I probably shouldn't have because I haven't been doing as much cardio. So the thing that I've actually been reintroducing in the last few few months is more cardio stuff. Uh, Particularly, I've been doing a lot of boxing type stuff that I can do at home because it's just, Mm -hmm. I actually had no idea. I I stupidly thought that boxing was basically just like an arm workout. I had no idea how good a full body workout it is. (laughs) So I've I've been doing that and it's actually pretty easy to kind of work in a shadow boxing routine at home. So in terms of where I need to go, I'm happy with my strength. I'm happy with my general you know, do I have any injuries? What I'm not really happy with, I would love to have a better gas tank. I would love to, you know, just like burn off a bit of the extra weight. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be in like rock hard ab physical specimen shape. I'm too old to care about that. I'm an old married dude with kids. I'm okay with a bit of dad bod, but I don't want it to be out of control. And additionally, I mean, with, you know, COVID going around, I mean, I'm triple vaccinated, but I still want to make sure that I put in the work to stay healthy because, We know that being in good shape is one of the best ways to reduce the impact of COVID in addition to vaccination. So I've done one of those things. I'm kind of assuming at this point in time that it's just a matter of time before we all get this thing. Realistically, by the time this episode goes live, because I got a bunch queued up, by the time this episode goes live, there's a very good chance that Steve will have already gotten COVID. (laughs) So my hope, assuming that I'm going to get this, is I want my lungs to be in as good shape as possible. I want to have good cardio. I want to be as healthy as I can. So I'm trying to get back to that place. So cardio and health for me are the things that are most important to me right now, if that answers your question. No, it does. And when I was talking about the walking earlier that I I really encourage everybody to, I'm a big fan of just like get three 10 minute walks in a day. That's my recommendation at the least. And it's really about just inspiring or getting people to to change the routine some and change the balance in their their day. So if somebody's sitting around at the desk all day working, they can get up, you know, every couple of hours and hit a little 10-minute walk. And what these sort of things do is we are very we like to think that the the work we do in the weight room burns all the calories and does all the energy and is everything, but it's really sadly the majority of ca- caloric burn that we have and stuff is is our activity outside the weight room just in Mm -hmm. our everyday actual life and if we start to make our lifestyle one of just being active and being healthy it facilitates 
the work inside. So for you, I would say a very easy answer right there is to start getting the habit of doing your your 10-minute walks and make sure you get three 10-minute walks in a day. And all of a sudden, that's, you know, seven days of 30 minutes of walking now. And that's going to help fat mobilization. It's going to help your baseline cardio level, which is a very, very big thing in helping you have a, a higher intensity gas tank for longer. So a simple walk can help you metabolize fat. It can help you, you know, build up your cardiovascular level at a baseline level. And it can just get the, the, the joints and the body moving again really easy. And those are so, so powerful. If, you, if anybody follows Raphael, you'll see that he's always getting walks in and Shanji's you know, very much the same. And as these guys have gotten older, they've just started to incorporate and make sure that the balance of their lifestyle is, is kind of in tune. Yeah. If you don't follow Rafael Lovato Jr. on social, I, I highly recommend it. His social game is on point. <laughs> and one of the things that really surprised me when I started following him is when you follow a lot of jujitsu athletes, they'll upload these like highlight reels of themselves, basically just murdering themselves doing CrossFit yeah. or just killer roles in the gym. I mean, I get a kick out of these no-gi guys who upload these sparring videos and they're basically like rolling in a puddle of their own sweat. It's actually quite disgusting. <laughs> but the thing that really surprised me about following Raphael was... When you see the stuff that he does in terms of the lens that he chooses to share with his life, the stuff he puts up on there, you don't see videos of him just murdering himself in the gym. Yep. You see very gentle, mindful movements. You see him working with the mace. With Shanje, you'll see him like meditating and just doing very, very quiet, introspective stuff. It's not the kind of stuff you would expect to see on an elite level athlete's feed. And I found that really reassuring and interesting to see that these guys are actually encouraging a more holistically healthy lifestyle. And it's important, I think, to have ambassadors like that in the sport because jujitsu at its best, in my opinion, it's more than just winning gold medals. It's more than just being able to defend your family or whatever self-defense goal you have. Yeah. A lot of it is just about having a practice that makes you healthier and is easy to take away from that sometimes. And so the, I love that there are leaders in the sport who are coming back to that and they're trying to demonstrate that jujitsu is more than, you know, just murdering your body for some short-term gain and, and on the podium, but also about improving your life holistically. I think that's an important message to send. Uh, I second that. These guys are both, I can speak both for Raphael and, and Shanji as I know them really well and they are. They are true martial artists. They are samurais. And they, they really embody that, that principle of like, if you think about a, a stoic, smart wisdom of a samurai, they are always calm. And they're able to be comfortable and breathe and relax. The fight mm -hmm. is where we, we channel our emotion and our energy and the physical into. But the biggest skill set we can learn is that when we don't have to go we need to relax. And, you know, we live in this, this world now that creates so much stress automatically for us. It's really hard for us to pull back. And to watch these guys is the way they treat martial arts and the way they, they think about it and the way they, they learn 
and they, they continue to just year in and year out stay as, as students themselves. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, those guys are probably the closest, I would say, in our space to what you would call like the, the warrior philosopher type. There's a lot of people who claim to be that. I mean, a lot of jujitsu people put like lions and samurai and all sorts of idiot shit all over their Instagram. Right. And in most cases, it's probably bullshit, honestly, right? It's just people puffing up their own ego. But in the case of Sean Jay and Raphael, I get the feeling that's actually how they live their lives. Uh-huh. Like you, you see the stuff with, with Jean Jay, like he, I kind of comes across like he really leads and lives that lifestyle. When he was on the podcast with us, um, it was a very philosophical discussion. It wasn't a lot of bravado. It's clear that he's put a lot of thought into the philosophy of things like pressure that most people probably don't think a lot about. And I really appreciate that because it comes across as more genuine than when you see on a lot of other people's Instagrams. Yeah, he's He's remarkable with that stuff. I, I really enjoyed that episode you guys did because that that is Shanji. He's always talking about those minute little details and there's the ability to learn how to move from the bottom and or the top is and and watch how he's how he's literally like kind of learned it over these last ten years. He's just refined it and and started to learn from other movement practitioners and all these things and he's gathered data and now He's teaching new techniques, which are, it's just mind blowing to watch those guys continue to evolve and, and continue to work and, and be so, like you said, in a combative sport where there are a lot of guys who are just tough and they talk a lot of shit and they think, they think this and that. These guys are just well rounded as it gets. I mean, Raphael, we're, we're talking jujitsu, but for him to win a world title in, in MMA is just like, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, there are a lot of people in jujitsu that I would not want to hold up as ambassadors to the sport, even if they might be very successful. You know, if my mom and dad came to me and said, Steve, we want to learn about this jujitsu thing. Put us in touch with the the (laughs) best and most famous athletes in the sport, and we want to talk to them to understand what this is all about. Like 99% of the people in the sport that we consider to be the tippy top level athletes, I would not want to like introduce to my mom and dad and be like, okay, this this person represents jujitsu. But Raphael and Shanji definitely fall into that bucket (laughs) where I would I would be comfortable having them sit down with like my parents and basically provide the sales pitch for jujitsu. And I would be confident that we would not all wind up looking embarrassed. Embarrassed. No, totally. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like these guys are quality reps for the sport. I think, uh, yeah, Shanji definitely could probably teach everybody on this planet something. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's just <laughs> such a beam of light. Now, one last question I got for you, Lucius, before we tie this up. Is there anything that we missed? Any really important points or general advice you wanted to hit on here that we didn't already cover in this conversation? I think we kind of got most of it out. But I mean, if I could... One last message for myself would just be if I could inspire people to, I know nobody wants to step back from their training. That's the hardest thing to do is take a step back when, when we're, we're motivated and we're always moving forward to what we're after. And by taking a step back, we're not truly taking a step back. I want you to take a step back and actually look at the balance of everything. I want you to think about, can I get a little bit better with my nutrition? Can I improve my my movement, my mobility a little bit? If I do that, will that help my body recover? And will I be able to just get a little bit more out of the exercise that I'm already doing? And if those sort of things, when you can see the areas that you need to kind of chip away at, just start small. Don't worry about going 
110% out the gate. Just start with some small changes, start moving a little bit more, start eating a little bit better food. And then in the weight room, just slow down a little bit and start to make sure that your training is providing you with as much as it's taking away from you. And I think when people start to to think about it a little bit more and kind of put pen to paper and really put their their lifestyle and their routine down on paper, they can start to see the areas that they need to improve. And as we talked about earlier, you're going to feel when you start to feel better, you generally do not want to feel worse. And that snowball just kind of gets gets going. Amazing. That's fantastic advice. And thanks for sharing that. Now, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to follow you, or if they want to work with you, how do they go about getting in touch with you? Well, I'm on Instagram. It is Green Strength IV. That is my handle. And um, you can find me and get a hold of me through Instagram, or you can go to the website at greenstrengthhq.com. Amazing. And of course, as always, I'll put those links in the show notes. So if you don't have a pen and paper handy, just open up the podcast, go to the show notes, and you'll just have a link you can click there. And of course, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I think everyone probably knows BJJMentalModels.com is the best place to do that. That's where you can quickly get in contact with me. There's a contact form. It's also where you can listen to all of the episodes we've ever done of the podcast, all 170 plus of them. And it's also where we've got a full database of the concepts we talk about on the show um, to the best of my knowledge. It is the biggest and most robust database of its kind. And of course, beyond that, if you want more, especially if you want to get into more long form strategy courses, uh, peak performance discussions, that's all of the stuff that we have on BJJ Mental Models Premium. You can check that out at premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. If you get value out of these conversations, I highly recommend that you consider that as your next step. In addition to direct coaching from the community, like I said, there's a ton of premium content on there. And you get access to our awesome private Discord, which I really think is the best community in the space. So please do consider it. There's a seven-day free trial, so you can check it out at no cost. Again, that's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. And of course, that link is also in the show notes as well. Well, Lucius, thank you so much for coming by. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for sharing all of that wisdom with us and giving us a really quality inside perspective of what it's like to work and guide these elite level athletes in our sport. Uh, I appreciate it. I had a great time. Amazing. And of course, to everyone out there who listens to us every week, greatly appreciate it as well. Thank you so much for the time and attention and your ongoing support. So thanks again for listening and we'll speak to you next week. 